Tactical Breakdown Podcast, Episode 25. This is Part 1 of our Instructor's Roundtable on Use of Force and Defensive Tactics. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown. A podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. And we're back on Tactical Breakdown, the podcast for law enforcement instructors and trainers to bridge that gap and give you everything that you need to know to deliver actionable information to the men and women who serve. This is episode 25. It's a special three-part episode. We pulled the audio from our live instructors roundtable video panel discussion on use of force and defensive tactics. We pulled this audio out for you because we know some of you are on the go and like listening to it on your favorite podcast player. So if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the Tactical Breakdown podcast in your favorite podcast app. Now, get your pen and paper handy. We're going to jump right into this interview with our four experts on the panel. I'm excited to bring this to you. Thank you for joining us again on the podcast. I hope you get some actionable information out of this. As always, make sure to like and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. We really appreciate the support, and I'm excited to bring more of this to you each and every week. This is round one of our instructor's roundtable on use of force and defensive tactics. Welcome to the Instructor's Roundtable. This, of course, is round one, the very first one we're putting out there, and it's all about use of force and defensive tactics training. We have assembled some of the best subject matter experts in the world, names that you know and trust. So a huge thank you to those guys for being here and joining me on the show. Before I introduce the instructors, I want to give a huge thank you to Blauer Tactical Systems for sponsoring this very first episode of the Instructors Roundtable. Tony Blauer and Blauer Tactical have been leading the way for the last 30 years in defensive tactics training, the physiology and psychology of fear and learning, and have worked with some of the top instructors and operators in law enforcement and the military around the world. If you visit them at blowerspear.com, check out their training courses, whether it's in person or online, use the code tactical for exclusive deals just for listeners of this podcast. So thank you to Blower Tactical Systems and Tony Blower for supporting us in what we're doing here. Now, jumping into our instructors, we have four of the top minds in the world when it comes to use of force and defensive tactics. So let's jump right into it, and I'm going to introduce them to you now. First one up on the panel is Mr. Chris Butler. Chris is the owner of Raptor Protection and Safety Services, a company dedicated to the delivery of cutting-edge use of force training and decision-making. Chris worked as a search and rescue tech for six years in Canada's Rocky Mountains before joining law enforcement in 1990. He has an extensive background in law enforcement use of force and has been a certified instructor or instructor trainer 
in a lot of disciplines, including incident command, firearms, combatives, less lethal, chemical agents, emergency vehicle operations, and many more. Chris is currently a national trainer for NLETC, or the National Law Enforcement Training Center. In addition, Chris is a recognized court expert, testifying over 30 times in use of force in criminal matters pertaining to officer-involved shootings and in-custody deaths, and is currently the director of program development for the Force Science Institute. Next up on the panel, we have Mr. Scott Savage. Scott also started his career in public safety at an early age of 19 as an EMT and paramedic. He spent 18 years with the Palo Alto Police Department in California, the last seven of which as a sergeant. In 2007, Scott was awarded the Bronze Level Training Award by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security for his work in presenting terrorism response training. In 2017, he transferred to the Santa Clara Police Department in California, where he continues to serve today. Scott's previous assignments include Patrol Supervisor, Incident Command, SWAT, Crisis Negotiation, Training Officer, and more. He is the founder of Savage Training Group, which provides advanced training to law enforcement officers to help them advance their careers and become experts in saving lives. The third member of our panel is Mr. John Bostain. John is the president of Command Presence Training and has committed the last 23 years to law enforcement, 20 of which in a training capacity. John frequently presents to executive level law enforcement audiences on the topics of leadership, officer safety, use of force, and learning and development. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Adult Education and is a certified force science analyst, along with being a past recipient of the ILEDA Trainer of the Year Award. John began his career with the Hampton Police Division in Hampton, Virginia, where he held various positions as a patrol officer, supervisor, detective, and academy instructor. In 2001, John joined the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, or FLETC, in Glencoe, and serving as an instructor, senior instructor, and program specialist in various training divisions. And rounding off our panel, we of course have Coach Tony Blauer. Uh, Coach Blauer has been in the martial arts, defensive tactics, and combatives industry for almost four decades. He is one of the only combatives experts who has successfully affected training across all the combat-related communities, including self-defense, combat sports, military, and law enforcement. His research on physiology, mindset, as it relates to confrontation management, has influenced over three decades of reality-based martial artists. Blauer Tactical Systems specializes in the research and development of close quarters tactics and scenario-based training for law enforcement, military, and professional self-defense instructors. So, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having us, Adam. Did I screw anything up? Not yet. Oh, Pretty so. well done. Uh, yet. Yeah, yet. Good point. Good point. Yet. Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> so... For those of you who are joining us, thank you guys all for being here. I'm looking at the uh, at the live stream right now. There's a bunch of people on. Um, and so thank you guys for being here. As always, um, we're going to be able to see your questions as they come up. So all the instructors on the panel here have access to your questions as you put them into that live stream chat. Um, if there are any that are completely, co- try to make them concise if you have a question, and we can post them up onto the screen, um, right onto the video, and the instructors can take a shot at them. We have a little bit of a schedule that we've planned out to speak to today to kind of cover everything that we can involved with use of force, defensive tactics training. Uh, so we're going to go through a list. And um, and yeah, you, we're just going to start off with a topic. We'll bring it up, and the guys are going to roundtable it, and we'll discuss it. So hopefully you guys get some, um, get some stuff out of it, anything actionable, and, and we're happy to help. So we before we went live, we were talking about 
training methodologies and block and silo training and blocked versus interleaf training. Um, there was a little bit that started to get back and forth pretty quick. So, uh, Chris, why don't you kick it off? Why don't you give us a quick overview of what we're talking about when we're talking about uh, block versus interleaf training? And uh, let's get at it. Sure. <clears throat> well, so I think block training would be probably what we would typically encounter in almost every every academy. And that is where the training is designed in large siloed blocks. So, for example, if we, we look at firearms training, uh, the firearms training is, is in a large prolonged block of time, large block of training. And once that block is complete, then the student might move into an entirely different block, maybe some type of control tactics, large block of training. And uh, so that's typically what's referred to as block training. And, and again, when you look at, I think, most academy schedules or curriculums, that, that's the type of layout that you see with, with block training. And, it, and so interleave training, by contrast, would be where the training is been designed and structured in such a way that they're in shorter blocks. So you may have a short block of, say, firearms training for a brief period of time. Uh, and by brief, the, the, the science is not clear on what is the exact perfect time frame for an interleave block. But, you know, so just for the sake of argument, let's say you've got a 30 minute to one hour section of firearms training, and then the student would go from there into an entirely different type of training, whether that's handcuffing training or even academic type training, criminal law, whatever it might be. And, and so there's a, a, a ver- variation, a significant variation of training from one segment to the next. And it's all interleaved throughout the entire academy that way. Can you maybe touch on a bit, what's the difference between that style of training and what you're currently seeing in, in most agencies and departments, you know, around the world? Well, so just my own experience in, in the different academies and different agencies that I've worked with over the years is typically, and even my own, my own agency that I worked with for 28 years is in, entirely a block model of training. And, uh, so, and, and typically the reason for that is, is not because the agency thinks that's the best model to instruct their officers for the most optimal performance and long-term retention and, and tactical performance on the street. The reason that we see block training is usually because of organizational administrative issues and that is just quite simply the easiest, most cost-effective way to get an entire troop or academy class of officers to expose them to all of their training. The difficulty is, or the, or the challenge is, is exposing an officer to block model of training does not equal competency and performance operationally on the street. So that's right. and, going up and that, let me add on to what Chris is talking about here. So um, if people want to understand this concept of what we call interleaving training, a uh, fantastic book called Make It Stick. And in that book, it explains interleaving. And one, so it really does mean doing multiple skills and interle- literally instead of, you know, as Chris described, having a week of firearms, for example. Now, the other piece of this, though, is if we're confined through administrative things, such as Chris said, uh, for example, a lot of what drives it is you can't get a driving track multiple times. Right. And you may still have block training, maybe two to four hour blocks. But what you have to do is break down how you're using it. 
Uh, I'll just use DT as, as, or control tactics as an example. Um, a lot of places you go, you'll have a block of instruction. You know, maybe it's a full week. Uh, even in my old agency at Fletzy, when we were there, everything was like a two-hour block or four-hour block. When we say interleaving, you can still interleave training inside that two-hour block. I'll give you an example. Um, in general, a lot of places, okay, we're going to do takedowns today. We may do 100 reps of and some, you know, an elbow takedown, for example. Well, you can do 100 reps, and by the end, the student feel pretty good about it. It's something that they call the illusion of learning, meaning they feel comp- pretty confident. But if you look at the four science data on skill degradation, that skill goes away pretty quickly. So instead of doing a half hour, even 45 minutes of just elbow takedown or leg sweep or one particular technique, what you end up doing is doing um, uh, maybe a few reps of an elbow takedown, teach it, get them some reps there. Then um, then you uh, do a a leg sweep or whatever techniques people are teaching. And then what you do is you do far more often. And then it's a lot easier to add context. So um, Force Science has done some really good stuff on DT skill degradation. Um, so when you hear the t- concept of interleaving, that's what it's, it's talking about. Instead of doing whole blocks or just doing the same thing over and over again, you're going to break those things down. And then you start to interleave skills such as, you know, drawing a firearm while you're uh, in the in the uh, combatives room, for example. So that's kind of what they're talking about when you hear that term interleaving. Awesome. Does anybody else have anything to add to that? Or are we going to let, uh, well, I was going to recommend make it stick, but then John took that. So then I'll just cross that out. <laughs> so there goes that comment. Yeah. It's going to sound really smart. Uh, right I, was just, I was reading the uh, comments as, as uh, John was talking, it looks like there's an Academy class, uh, shout yeah. out to SRPA yeah. Academy class 21. Mike, who's that's, listening. That's Mike. That's Mike Musango out of Syracuse. Oh, great. Well, so then, he has, he has gonna, his academy uh, class joining in, so uh, welcome you uh, guys. For, amazing! And, uh, welcome to the show. These guys are gonna their careers are gonna skyrocket because they're getting all go, this, yeah. like in yeah. the academy. They don't realize what they have right now, but uh, I think you know another point to make is that you know, and all the trainers I'm sure would agree, is what's the point of what we're doing? You know, we're, if we're sitting in a classroom and the point is to put on training, then yeah, put on block training, uh, test them very quickly. They had some short-term retention. They passed the test and we're on to the next thing. If the point is learning, you know, then that's a whole separate discussion. And that's what we're talking about here with interleaving. Um, th- that's a very, very different thing than simply, I want to train you. I want you to perform a skill. I mark you off. And then I go on to the next thing. When that kind of training is, is happening, a lot of the times, uh, like was pointed out, there's administrative reasons for it. It's uh, check the box training. It's liability prevention. I can say that I trained you. You did it. I saw you do that move once. Therefore, you're trained. That's a whole different uh, conversation than learning. And learning is what you know what we're talking about within our leaving. Learning talks about no. I, I want you to commit something to long-term memory and be able to recall it in the context of whatever you need to do in a in a fight, in a, a car chase, whatever that that may be. And that involves. Um, not necessarily complicated theories, but just a little bit more sophisticated theories like interleaving, mixing up skills, because that's how it'll be in the street. Um, spaced retrieval, right, where you you learn something and then uh, sleep on it a couple of days, and then we, we test you on it again. Testing, maybe not necessarily pass-fail, or you're going to get kicked out of the academy or something like that, but testing as a diagnostic tool, right? Testing to say, mm-hmm. 
did I just teach you something a couple of days ago and you retained it? Um, these are all, it's, I always look at it as two different discussions because, you know, to be honest, training is not hard. I could stand in front of a class, you know, click through a PowerPoint, call it training. And that's really not that hard. If I'm trying to create learning and ensure learning has occurred, that requires just a little bit more um, attention, I think. Yeah. And John, you mentioned, you used a phrase earlier, you said the illusion of learning. Mm-hmm. And um, so I just, a couple things to add on to that. And first of all, Syracuse, uh, Mike Masenka is doing exceptional cutting edge stuff at the Academy there in Syracuse, uh-huh. actually taking this science and he's, he's, he's broken the mold and he's incorporating this science into the Academy there. So that that's outstanding. But this illusion of learning, uh, is uh, something that's important to understand because what will happen as soon as you start interleaving your training curriculum is during the learning event, the instructors and the students will not see their performance rise to the level that it does during block training. So the perception then is, oh, the block training is better because during the training we see our students able to perform at this level. Um, but as has been accurately pointed out, what we need to look at is not are the students able to parrot and replicate what they've done that day on the mats or on the firing range, but does that training stick? In other words, a week from now, three months from now, six months from now, how is that student's performance? And what the research on interleaving training shows, and there's over 100 published peer-reviewed research articles that clearly, I mean, there's no, the jury is not out on this. The, the verdict is in interleaving yeah. training results in the highest level of performance and retention long-term. So we've got, we, but trainers have to understand that and they have to fight through the urge to want to, to break away from interleave training because they're not seeing the results in the short term that they expect. And as Scott has pointed out, uh, slow wave sleep is instrumental in consolidation of motor learning performance over long-term retention. And so how you schedule all this, how you integrate exercise into your training curriculum, how you you structure motor skill versus motor learning and organize sleep cycles around all that and effortful retrieval uh, of those skills. It's all critical for performance and long-term retention. I totally agree. And one last comment um, is when we, I don't want this conversation to go too long, but one last comment on that is that uh, you mentioned Syracuse. I'll just give a shout out to the Oregon Department of Public Safety Standards and Training. Um, it's uh, their state academy. Uh, for people who think that uh, this is not possible, that you can't take a whole academy and just and start interleaving, it is effortful, no question about it. It doesn't just come naturally. Uh, you have to retrain your instructors and things like that. But they've done an amazing job out there. They actually have um, where students are doing low-level communication interaction type scenarios by Friday of the first week. They just they start putting stuff in context. Instead of teaching like an eight-hour block of communication, they might get an hour and a half, two hours a day. And then they're interleaving other skills that go along with communication, such as tactical positioning, um, how, do, how do we create that, that discretionary, non-discretionary time and things like that. They're really doing a good job. And uh, they're on their third class so far. And uh, I was talking to the lady running the program. I said, please tell me the results or what the science says it should be. <laughs> she said, yeah, it's working the way it was supposed to. Uh, sometimes you go after science and you realize 
dang, God, it didn't it didn't work like it was supposed to. They're having very good success. So if anybody wants to know more about it, uh, reach out to Adam and connect with me, and I'll put you in direct contact with them. I was just going to say, if anybody has any resources, it'd be a nice time. But no, send them my way. Cause I, yeah, it's perfect. Um, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll uh, collect all the information from all you guys um, as to where we can send people uh, to get information on how to, to start putting that in and implementing it into your academies. So, uh, so we'll do that for sure. There's a lot of ways we can Tony, go. I, I, I'm sorry. I thought Tony was going to say something. Oh, Tony, you got some? Yeah, thanks, Adam. Thanks. You're just going to interrupt me the whole show, right? Well, <laughs> the, uh, uh, I'll give you a lot of really good points here. I think, I think one of the, 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 it was, it was mentioned very briefly, but I think it's the most important thing here. This, the, the understanding, the distinction between block training and interleaving isn't for the student, the student that should be transparent to the student. It's the, it's the administration and their trainers that need to understand it. And it's gotta yeah. be, you know, years ago, um, Oh, this was probably 15 years ago. Uh, I started uh, training the trainers at Asymmetric Warfare. And uh, everything we did, every single class we did, I would say, what's the scenario? Do we need to practice this? So I had like a list of, of uh, let's say, a, like a menu of things they could, they could pick from. And then I would say, does this have a place in your scenario? And so we always started with the scenario and this was again before the, the you know the cooler language was out there, but they ended up adopting this and calling this their outcomes based training methodology. And I think it was uh, um, part and parcel or hand in hand with this whole interleaving process. Where where the big thing, if you're a trainer listening to this, is just understand, really understand why are you doing this? What do you want the student to be able to do at the end of it? And then reverse engineer your training to support that. If it's that meaningful in the class, that will boost uh, retention. And and another thing that, that I've experimented with that doesn't usually uh, get inserted in some of the academic element is the, the deepest interleaving effect is when you're blending multiple skill sets for a singular scenario. In other words, yeah, the block training that's in a silo we know that's the least effective and there's the research out there and all the scientific literature and stuff like that. I intuitively went a, 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 a layer deeper in that. And that was to experiment with the ranges of just natural speed, quickness and suddenness. And, and so if we're teaching a baton strike, if I was teaching a palm strike, if I was teaching drawing a weapon, you had people who could, let's say, draw their weapon, you know, they'd be ready beep, and they would just draw their weapon. And then, that skill set, if you measured that, changed uh, if they were in a time course. Suddenly, you added stress to it. And then that changed dramatically if you were doing force-on-force force with UTM or another marking cartridge round. And so what was interesting is that is also a type of interleaving where I'm challenging the emotional, psychological, physical systems. I'm challenging technique versus tactics and and. That to me is really where the the uh, the exciting part happens. But you need to the, the the instructors building off this need to really understand what the interleaving is and how to blend these elements. And I think the core needs to be at the end of the day as a, as a behavioral species as we are that we're made up of physiology, physics, and psychology. That's 
the deepest level, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the bottom tier of that is physiology. And then the next one is survival. And so if we, if we built our, everything we did on that pyramid and then evolve from there, you're going to see uh, amazing results. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Well, all right. Awesome. Thanks, Tony. Appreciate that. Sorry to cut you off, dude. I'm like looking at 1800 different things right now. Um, when, when you, we talk about that and I guess we can get right into, I was thinking about this later, but maybe we can talk about it now is developing instructors. Um, where, where, if this is something like Tony was saying that from an instructor level, this is, this is a level of competency that we need for instructors to have. What other, skills what other requirements would each of you say that should be in place before an instructor is allowed to actually take part in teaching a class anybody want to take a first shot at it let me i'm going to go really short because you guys guys, uh are because of your backgrounds you're going to have a lot more interesting things to me but uh, you know i've been uh, teaching law enforcement military emergency services for 30 years and um I get a lot of people sending me resumes and and in the essays and in the conversations with them, I realize that a lot of them think it's just a cool job. It's like to be the ninja, to get paid. I'm a DT instructor. I'm a combatives instructor. Um, I used to have, I, before every single class I would do like a, before zoom was around and, and these cool things like the, the app you're on, we do these Skype calls like on Sunday night before our five day class. And I would go over the, the the presentation and change drills. And I had a couple of, of, of trainers who forgot that I could see them because we were on Skype. And so it's Sunday night. They just got into town. I'm not there. And I'm going, guys, I remember on Wednesday this. And a couple of them, I'd see them like sitting there like this, rolling their eyes. And I go, hey, asshole, you know, I can see you. This is Skype, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, and I'm like, and I, and I would say this class is not for you. This class is for the student. We are not in business. It doesn't exist if there are no students. If there was no violence in the world, there would be no need for police officers. This conversation wouldn't happen. This show wouldn't happen. So for me, what I was always looking for are people who want to serve, people who care about the survivability, enhancing the survivability of other people. And that was the foundation. In in terms of, and, and the other guests on the, on the show have way more uh, government experience as as I'm kind of an outlier, I get to go in and I get to swear and do things that other trainers don't do, but (laughs) you know, just because of that, but I I I, I have been, and I, and I can't mention names of places, but I've been at some very high level places and been embarrassed by the arrogance and the ego of some of the training staff and what they think of the students and what they, so my whole thing is this, do you care about other humans do you abhor violence and do you want to do the right thing so i just wanted to throw that out there and 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 let you guys take it from there no that's awesome yeah. i appreciate it actually we we had talked about that uh on our episode uh when you came on the podcast that was one of the things that we had talked about and you had brought up was for me when i first became an instructor what i said uh when i told tony and the, the thing was i went in there because i was had done martial arts and defensive tactics for so long already and I stepped in there thinking I was king shit and I knew everything and I could take everybody. Um, there's a big difference between being a player and being a coach. And sometimes the best players don't make the best coaches. And you have to you have to learn to to humble yourself and say, 
I'm not here to show people what I can do. I'm here to show them what they can do. Um, and that's, I think that's the biggest thing for me anyway, uh, to learn. So, uh, anybody else want to, to add their, their two cents? Yeah. I'll just, I know that everybody's got something. Um, a couple of, so Brian Willis, everybody, everybody, um, at least on the panel, we all know who Brian Willis is. He's been a mentor to a bunch of us. Um, one of the things Brian always says, it's tags along with what Tony was saying is that it's simply as an instructor, it's never about you. Um, it, it just, that's the golden rule of being an instructor. It's never about you. Um, it's always about the student. And if you can't wrap your head around that, then you, we should, we should weed, weed those people out. Um, so I'll, that kind of goes along with that. And, uh, I've always argued that, it, listen, of course you have to be, you have to, if you're going to be a firearms instructor, you have to be able to shoot well. Uh, if you're going to be a defensive tactics, control tactics, uh, instructor, you have to be able to perform. But I've always thought that in the, the selection process to actually selecting instructors um, is a little challenging because we have a tendency to do, okay, uh, you're a good shooter. You should become a firearms instructor. Uh, well, you, um, you're a black belt in whatever you know, uh, style of uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu or whatever it might be. So, therefore, you should be a control tactics. And, oh, by the way, you haven't crashed a car in two years, so we'll make you a driving instructor, right? And so we look at skill, and then we don't ask the question is, can they actually communicate? Can they actually teach? Um, so I think that's a huge part of it is you have to, you know, um, they understand the science of how people actually learn. You, we, heard, we had that whole conversation about interleaving. Do they understand that? And I will tell you, um, Stacey Utsi out at uh, Oregon, one of the things they had to do um, when they uh, started implementing the interleave training, some instructors refused to get on board. And if they didn't want to get on board with it, then they didn't, they weren't allowed to be instructors anymore. So um, I think that's the, those two things in particular are things we need to be looking at when we're bringing new instructors on. And then if you're an experienced instructor, uh, Dr. Alexis Artwall taught me this, uh, to ask myself this as often as possible, probably 15 years ago. She said, John, if you're going to be a good instructor, ask yourself this question routinely. And the question is, why do I know what I think I know? Or you can also say something like, why do I believe what I believe? Or why do I do what I do? If the only reason you have for doing it is because that's the way you've always done it, then you're probably not giving the student what they need um, because things change. There's a reason that most law enforcement officers don't carry a 38 revolver on patrol anymore. You know what? We realized there was a better way of doing it. So uh, for me, that, that little the key things, make sure we're selecting the right instructors that not only have skill, but um, can actually teach. Asking that question, why do I know what I think I know? And make, making sure that people understand that as trainers, it's never about the trainer themselves. It's always about the student. So that would be my, my three tips, I guess. Awesome. That's good stuff. Uh, I think for me, uh, I mean, I agree with everything that, that both guys were just saying. And, and uh, uh, when I'm looking at a potential instructor, <clears throat> I literally write down on a piece of paper, just like I did right now. And I cross it off as, as I'm talking to them. And the words I write down are uh, humble, hungry, smart, empathy, authority. And then the last one is care, which is kind of like empathy. But to me, it's just a, a little bit different. I think uh, they've got to be humble and it's great to be confident. And I think the people that are listening to this would, I don't know if humble is the first word they would use to describe all of us, but I think we are once you get to know us. Uh, we are very confident, and you won't be able to shut us up. And we really believe strongly in what we have, but we're also humble enough to know what we don't know. 
I'm moved by the fact that, you know, two of the guys have, you know, a bunch of books in, in the back there shows you how much we're all just students. We're still trying to learn where I'm picking up tips right now. Uh, but the, uh, the humble part is huge, hungry. You have to kind of want to do it. It's not always easy to be an instructor, uh, public speaking is everyone's number one fear, right? So it's kind of hard, uh, traveling around, sleeping in hotels, getting up in front of a class when you don't feel good and that kind of stuff. It's, it's tough. Uh, smart, obviously goes without saying, uh, the empathy and the care part are huge. I think we can, um, teach you lots of, uh, you know, if anyone's listening, wants to be an instructor, we could teach you all kinds of instructor tricks, right? And things that are, will get an audience in little exercises to do what to do when the projector goes down, we could teach you all the little tricks, but what we can't teach you is how to care and really care. And, uh, like Tony's talking about, he's passionate about uh, helping people defend themselves from violence because it's kind of a crazy world out there. Uh, I have my own you know, story for why I like teaching cops and helping keep cops safe, as all the instructors do. And it, it has to be a real internal motivator. And if it's because you want to make a lot of money or you want the prestige of standing up in front of class and acting like you know it all, those people wash out quick. Nobody goes back to their classes. And I'm, I know it's no, no one that we would want to be involved with. Uh, so I think those things, yeah, humble, hungry, smart, uh, empathy, authority, right? Kind of have to be an authority and credible in the space and then really, really care. Uh, and then we could teach you all the tricks and all the, you know, how to teach parts of it. You can read all the good books, but those are qualities I look for. That's great, man. Awesome. Chris. Yeah. Well, I agree with everything that's been said and, um, I think just to add on to what Scott said, when he mentioned those character logical traits, you know, when I was in charge of the academy and part of my responsibility was hiring new instructors, bringing them in to the academy, uh, my position was, look, the one thing I can never teach a police officer as an instructor is a char- the character that I need them to have. They have to have that. I can teach you to have the technical skills. I can even teach you instructional techniques as you learn over the over the years and you know, it's taken each one of us on here uh, basically a lifetime of law enforcement to become um, competent instructors. And, but I can't take a police officer who has no compassion, no desire to serve, who doesn't have um, understand the need for commitment and dedication to do this and have that deep internal milieu that drives them to want to do that job. None of us can give that police officer that that character. Um, so that has to be the first starting point is the right human being. And, and then we can add everything else on after that. Right on. Does anybody have anything to add? I'd be really good at PowerPoint because every student <laughs> loves PowerPoint. <laughs> Especially when you read your slides. Absolutely. That's how you do it. You make long slides and you read them to the class. <laughs> the more text, the better. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, let's, uh, let's break into some training myths. Um, I know this is something that Chris had, had said he wanted to talk about. Some some myths that, that come in training, whether it be on the instructor side or from the student side, um, when we're talking about whether it be defensive tactics, uh, martial arts training, use of force training. Um, so Chris, well, I'll let you kick it off. Oh, sure. Give me that easy topic. Well, I think it's your point. Yep. <laughs> you sent it to me. It doesn't mean I was going to have input. Well, right. I, I think, I think the first, um, myth of, of 
learning is one we've already touched on, and that is the illusion of learning. And But it bears repeating again because it's, it is a big one, and that is where, you know, instructors have got to understand that what they see happening at the end of the training day on the mat does not mean learning has actually taken place. And so there's a big difference between what you see your student being able to perform, how long they're able to retain that skill, and can they actually use that skill operationally uh, on the street when they need it. Um, I think another myth of learning, which is a, a big one that we really have to get a grip on, is the type of feedback that we give our students in training. There's a big reluctance by, on instructors to want to avoid their students making mistakes. And so I'll give you an example of that. And maybe you're doing some high fidelity training, some reality-based training, and you're running a scenario and you see your student, your performer, making a tactical error. And typically the type of feedback model that's given in that is that the student is then told what they're doing wrong how to correct it, and how to do something right. And what the research shows on decision training, you know, this is, this is the irony of, of the police training paradigm, is we, we're so reluctant to go outside of our police law enforcement mentality into other interdisciplinary uh, fields, such as high-level athletics, aerospace, military, medicine, that actually study this stuff and how people learn and are trained the best. And that type of feedback model is the worst way to train motor skill and motor learning, especially with pro what's called probabilistic tasks or ju judgment tasks, where the, the performer has to visually perceive the context of what's happening in front of them, make a decision on what to do and how to respond. The best type of feedback is what's called decision training, where you actually guide, it's guided feedback, where the instructor um, is skilled at questioning the performer on their what they're doing and getting them to self-realization their own thinking metacognition really thinking about thinking to the to come to their own conclusion that what they're doing is less desirable there's a better way to do it and for them to solve that problem now the research shows that that is a profoundly more deeper and significant uh type of learning and it lasts longer it's retained for long periods of time um, versus the, uh, well, we just want to correct behavior during the training. We tell them what they've done wrong, tell them how to do it right and, and move on. Uh, yeah. You're going to see them be able to parrot what you want them to do during the training event, but don't be under the illusion that they've actually learned anything. Yeah. Um, and I, I a thousand percent agree with you, Chris, the model that we use, um, if anybody cares, uh, it follows exactly what Chris is talking about. We teach this to FTOs and we teach it to all uh, instructors who might be running scenarios or even, you know, any type of instructor. Uh, we ask, we use four Socratic questions, Socratic method. Um, if you know anything about Socratic method, then uh, it's exactly what Chris was talking about. This is the way they teach law school. This is the way they teach med school and things like that. That's that's how it's done. So our questions is when uh, so we have a student who comes out of a scenario. The first question that we ask them is what happened? And at first it takes people getting used to it because they are expecting them to you to immediately jump in and correct them and things like that. So we just say, hey, what happened? 
And then um, if you don't feel if the student doesn't feel comfortable answering right, right away, won't get into the details, I'll just say, okay, then what happened? And so we're just trying to get them to tell us basically what happened. The second thing I do is I say, hey, um, all right, I give a kind of background of what they perceived, what they saw during the scenarios, things like that. My second question to them is, what did you do well? And again, a lot of times, especially basic students, they're a little reluctant to do that because we've grown up in this law enforcement environment, like Chris said, where the student's supposed to shut up, not do, you know, not have any comments. And that's just not effective. So I'll say, what did you do well? And they'll start to tell me if they're reluctant, the instructor knows the things that they did well. So I'll just, instead of telling them, I'll say, how, uh, tell me about your vehicle position. And they'll describe it. I said, uh, what, you know, tell me about uh, the decision to make a passenger side approach. I'll kind of just give them prompts, but they're telling me everything. So I say, what happened? Then I talk about um, what did you do well? My next question to them is, hey, if we were on this exact same scene again and we went through the exact, it, nothing changed. The fact pattern didn't change. What would you do differently? And they'll come up with an answer. And again, if as the instructor, I know things that they probably could have done differently. So if they won't answer the question, I'll kind of prompt them. But it's never telling them the answer. I want them to find the answer themselves. And then the last thing I'll talk about is, um, as an instru- I remember when we first implemented this, we'd had instructors that were very upset about this process. Uh, I said, well, uh, we just going to pat every, uh, you know, pat every student on the ass and tell them good, good job. And I guess my 25 years experience doesn't matter. We had so much pushback. It was crazy. And I said, you know what? Hold on, Skippy. Just chill out for a second. We're going to use your training experience on the fourth question. And the fourth question simply is, if I see uh, a student and I want them to do something that's more desirable, as Chris said, uh, I'd like to see them do a passenger side approach instead of a driver side approach, for example. The last question to them is, what if, and then I fill in the blank, what if you had done a passenger side approach? Would that work for you? And you'll watch them actually having to process walking through a quasi-imagery session as they're walking through it to kind of think to themselves, okay, yeah. And they'll say either yes or no. And... Um, now, if the answer is, no, that wouldn't work for me, you could try and force them to do it. And especially in FTO, they'll do it while you're with them. But if they don't feel it'll work for them, they're probably never going to use it again. So those are four questions we use in debriefing um, either trainees in, in the FTO program or um, instructors. It's all Socratic. Hmm. Great. I really like the uh, what would you do different? I think that... Uh, that's uh, as part of the whole metacognition loop of understanding abstraction. I, I know A, I know C. You wanted them to do B, but if they can figure out how to figure out B, yeah, with your yeah. guidance, then that then that sticks. That that was that was really good, John. Hey, Adam, what was the question? Was uh, myths in training? Yeah, myths in training. So for for example, something like you know the amount of reps that need to be done. Um, oh. Those th- you know they, like there's there's a question for you now. <laughs> Tony will have probably something interesting on this one because you know going back to the ten thousand repetitions, um, you know Bruce Lee. But where where does that mindset change? Where it's we have to you know in qualifications we understand you know we have to have X amount of rounds through a firearm and we have to hit have X amount of hits. In defensive tactics, it's it's usually left up to the instructor to say, okay, well, this is the course that we're teaching. You know, this is the the standard that we've laid out. They have to show competency in this skill, this skill, and this skill. But when we're in the training program, it could be five hits on a target. It could be ten, like 50, 
200, 300? Where, where do we draw the line and, and why is that a myth and what should we be doing to correct it? There's, there's a, I'll, I'll just jump in and vent for a second. <laughs> the, you know, Fort, Fort Science didn't need to do the study they did. I'm glad they did it, right? Uh, because now it's white paper, it's evidence, right? The study, UK, Canada, and America. I think all of us knew there was a problem. It's called evidence-based training. You look at CCTV, body cam, helmet cam, uh, stupid smartphones, uh, of, and you don't see people doing the stuff they were taught or trained or qualified on. Um, you know, the, the thing... You know, the, the original research on the 10,000 hours made famous, of course, by Macklemore with his song 10,000 Hours, uh, but uh, made famous before that by Gladwell. But the original scientist or researcher was Erickson. And, you know, I've got a, uh, it's a it's a meme now, but it's a maxim I've been sharing for decades. Be careful what you practice. You might get really good at the wrong thing. I'll say it again. Be careful what you practice. You might get really good at the wrong thing. We all know now uh, because of all the work that's done in neuroscience, that neurotransmitters and myelinization occurs. There's no such thing as literal, actual muscle memory, but you're, you you create a neural pathway, and that becomes what we lovingly all refer to as muscle memory. If there's no awareness, there's no chance, and the the awareness has to be there for the neural pathway to activate. So if you're truly ambushed, what kicks in the amygdala, the limbic system, you get a startle flinch and bypasses cognition, executive function is hijacked. What we need to do is really start studying that neuroscience and and introducing that into defensive tactics. And when we talk about the myth of 10,000 hours and this and that, what I always talk about, I go, let's say you're practicing a, a, a weapon retention exercise where 99% of, the, of them around the world are, you know, uh, you've got a role player, he's got gloves on and maybe has protection on it, maybe in some, in some, some gear. Uh, you let him grab your gun, you pin his hand, you smash his radial nerve, you do whatever you're going to do. Um, and you do your 10,000 reps and you get really freaking good at that weapon retention move. What people don't realize is that they've done 10,001 reps, letting somebody grab your gun. And I first had this epiphany watching the old caliber press, uh, uh ultimate survivors video. And I was watching it studying and, and, and I'm sure you've all seen it, but you know, it's, it's all interviews with police officers who lost their firearms in the line of duty and, and, you know, all of them were, you know, injured, some of them catastrophically. And every one of them said in the interview that the suspect target glanced the gun and then the fight was on and, and they lost control of the gun. And as an outlier, as an outsider, because you, you all know that I wasn't a police officer. So I was always like, you know, sitting on the outside going, why are they doing it? It's like this. Why are they doing it? And I would see that practice and I, and it was the happenstance of studying ultimate survivors. I went, all of these people who live to tell the tale said he target glanced the gun. That's the first pre-contact cue. Why aren't we moving when the suspect looks at my gun? And and so I started like super analyzing that stuff. And then, you know, when all that research came out with the 10,000 hours, it's okay to do tons of reps. The more reps you do, the better you're going to get. But you want to be very careful what you practice because you might get really good at the wrong thing. And we oftentimes confuse technical with tactical. I think that's something that that the defensive tactics community needs to revisit. Um, and that is, you know, we get people in line. We hit, put your foot here. You strike here. We want accuracy. Do this. But the role player isn't presenting the emotional, psychological threat of a sudden violent attack 
And, and that's always been a big, a big uh, pet peeve of mine too, is, is getting more realistic role playing for final training exercises. And so the, the protocol that I, that I recommend people practice and anyone listening to this can apply this is there's, there's a, there's a technique stage where you're a technician, you're learning how to hold your baton, how to hold the gun, how to punch, how to palm strike, whatever, whatever your system's doing. And then the next phase is this, this training phase where you, become the athlete, the tactical athlete. Okay. I've got this technique down. And then the last stage is actually the alive stage where can I apply the technique and the movement in a scenario? And, and, and the scenario has to be, uh, uh, I, I call it the three R's and, and, uh, it's realistic, relevant, and rigorous. When you put all that stuff together, what we find is and this is a, a you know Adam we talked about this but I couldn't find the video someone told it to me about it a shot show it was a, an officer body cam he's being shot at through a vehicle he grabs his weapon and he's engaging and you can see him he's being fired at and the guy's in a car and you can see he's nervous with his shots the gun's kicking around he does a reload that isn't super clean and and a lot of the all the super wizard people who weren't in the gunfight online going yeah that was kind of sloppy. Right. And I'm going, holy shit, did he terminate the threat and survive? Yes, he did. So I go, that would be considered tactical, not technical. And in a holy shit moment when your life is on the line, you know, be tactical, not technical. And oftentimes the only person that can be technical during an extreme violent encounter is a sniper who's nowhere near the threat. That's my rant. Good point. I, I really want to touch on that real quick. I mean, there's a lot of guys here. Um, I know John and, and Chris who have, have done a lot of testifying um, in both Canada and the U.S. when it comes to use of force and officer-involved shootings. Um, one of the things that just stuck out to me, Tony, when you said that is, and I was, I've been guilty of this before, and I've seen people guilty of this, when you see an incident that has taken place and you look at it and say, well, I could have done that better, I should have done this, or they should have done that, and, and just come into that realization that, you're in no unless you're that officer, that person, you have no idea what's happening. You don't know what's going on in their body, what's going on in their head. So why are we sitting back, um, you know, a thousand yards away looking at it and saying, oh, well, this is what the policy said. The policy said, well, he was only allowed to use this amount of force, but he didn't. He used he used le- uh, lethal force. Well, why? It's not in the policy. And now we're going to slam him. Um, but I'll, I'll pass it off to, to one of you two guys um, to kind of explain that better than my horrible uh, rendition. You go for it, John. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of the best way to answer that question. Um, uh, I'm at a loss for words for a second here. Let me uh, repeat it again just one time. Sorry about that. Adam, were you just asking, like, why do people feel it's okay to, to judge something if they were? Oh, okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. so uh, it's funny. This ha- uh, anybody who ever teaches cl- uh, use force, especially in a classroom, for example, um, what kind of happens is uh, you'll get a lot of, uh, well, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> My I shouldn't do this as a, as a private business owner, but my first answer is shut up. I literally, I'm like, you don't get to say that. You don't get to say what somebody would have, or I would have done this because you have no idea. Um, and it, you just, it's a, it's a, it's a completely uneducated, uneducated comment. They weren't there. They don't know the totality of circumstances. They didn't feel every clinch of the muscle and they did. And, and when it comes to body cameras, for example, one of the key things we have to understand about body cameras, while I, I, I agree that they're probably helping more officers than they're hurting. 
One thing you have to absolutely remember is it's a two-dimensional rendering of a four-dimensional event, um, meaning that um, when you're in, you know, even when you're just trying to get somebody's arm behind them, well, the camera doesn't feel somebody actually tense up. It doesn't feel the muscle in the forearm uh, tense up. It doesn't feel somebody dropping the weight. It doesn't feel somebody shifting back and forth. So one of the things we talk about, it, that, that's all information the officer has that the camera doesn't get. And that's why it's still important for the officers. And one thing I, I make a big deal out of, especially in the United States, under our Supreme Court case law, it says perspective of a reasonable officer. Well, some people think that's been uh, surplanted by body camera, and it just flat out hasn't. That's just not true. Um, that's why uh, I, if you had one of the um, a myth along those lines is uh, used to be at least when I came on the job, and I'm, I'm guessing everybody here, uh, we were told on a use of force report if it didn't if it uh, isn't written, it didn't happen. That's the way that's the way we learned it. Um, and then somewhere along the line, some moron, I guess, comes along and says, well, less is more in a use of force report. I'm like, no, it's never more, more and more, because you have to articulate those actual things. Like I said, the, the lowering of the weight, the weight shifting. Um, this is my body camera. Depending on where it's positioned, if the guy's looking around looking for escape routes, it may not catch it. My body camera, if I'm behind him controlling his hands, literally might just see the back of his um set of his back. So um, while I do think they're useful and I think they are great for um, uh, helping us understand what happened, nothing replaces the officer's actual articulation of the actual facts that they perceive at the moment force was used. So um, I kind of combined a couple of things there. So hopefully that was the answer you're looking for. I want to, I want to slip in something really quick also with the body cam doesn't pick up. It doesn't pick up fear. And yeah, and- and we just assume, you know, and, that, and that's been like probably the, the 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 core of everything that that I yell about all the time is about this about managing fear, and and you know everyone practices and and we you know they qualify and this goes back to uh, you know uh, the question you asked earlier, Adam, and that's you know one of the other myths is that you know your bell curve uh, uh, graduation procedure doesn't doesn't replicate the threat you're going to meet in the street and and so you know whether it's lunsford or jeters or any other other classic videos that get that get shown in in that moment people look at that and they go well i don't i wouldn't waved out backup or i wouldn't have been this so close i wouldn't take my eyes none of that would have mattered in those contexts because like in using those two examples both of the attackers in both scenarios had committed grievous bodily harm or murder before. And you can't match the adrenaline dump of an asocial predator immediately. You've got to weather the ambush. So one of the things that, that I think we, we perpetuate a myth in people who graduate classes, just like we perpetuate the myths in people who have get martial art belts. There's an assumption that if I learn this arm bar, this choke, this disarm, that I'm safer. And, and, you know, you do scenario training and you find out that's not necessarily the case. It's really interesting to what both of you guys said. The, the one thing that I always go back to is um, when you talk about articulation, John, we, I think that starts at that 
academy level with the instructor and talk, going back to the instructor competencies, right? Um, I mean, I can I can point out a, probably way too many people that are teaching techniques that they understand how to teach the technique, they understand what it is, but they uh, they don't understand anything else behind it. So, I mean, right. armbar takedown. I mean, every single one of us here and everybody listening understands what that is. But can somebody actually sit there and explain what that is, how the body moves, why it moves, what muscle groups are engaged, what you're actually trying to do, whether it be displaced balance or those types of things? How many instructors can actually explain the why behind the technique, which is what the officer is going to need when it comes to articulating that incident in their report when it actually happens? Right. And we actually, it's kind of funny. We, um, we actually talk when we talk heavily in articulation, because I honestly find that oftentimes officers are doing the right things. They just don't know how to describe what they've done, uh, in a, in a, uh, in a solid manner. And so in our classes, we always, uh, we have a slide. It just says, uh, CYA. I'll, I'll ask people, so, well, what does that mean? Of course, everyone says, well, cover your ass. I said, absolutely not. CYA means can you articulate? And that's what we say, right? And it gets to chuckle, but that's really at the heart of it. Um, the problem is, is that we've not done a great job of uh, uh, teaching report writing, especially at the academy level. We use a lot of goofy language at the academy sometimes. Not in clearly not broad brush. All academies are doing this, but if you uh, if your report writing consists of words like. Uh, the subject was actively resistant or assaultive or something like that. You know, he was ver- verbally non-compliant. Okay, that's fine, but you better give some description as to how they do it. For example, when we teach articulation on non-compliant, I see that word in reports ad nauseum. Subject was non-compliant, non-compliant, but they don't give you anything on that. So I, uh, when it comes to non-compliant, I always say, listen, articulate the command given and subject response. I say, get down on the ground. He got up. I said, stay there. He, he came closer, uh, whatever whatever it is. So when we talk about noncompliance, all of those words that we use, I call them lazy cop phrases. We have to do a better job of actually, in the instructors, it's really on us to make sure we're teaching officers how to do it. It's, it's, a, it's almost a lost art, uh, quite honestly. And that goes back to my comment earlier of, um, you know, when we're talking about less is more, that's just not true. More is always more in a use force report. And anybody who's ever had to testify to something two or three years later, you're going to want more in your report. I, I, that's just undeniable. Yeah, I agree with that. I recently was involved as an expert in a use of force case where the officers now finds himself charged criminally as a result of the use of force. And it's approximately three years after the incident when this now goes to trial and the officers on stand and uh, the officer's notes were absolutely in there. They were horrendous. Uh, they did not describe anything. Uh, and so he's on the stand now three years later trying to convince the judge that, well, this is exactly how it played out. This is how I felt. This is what I saw. And the judge looked over at him and said, and you didn't think any of this was significant enough to put in your notes right. immediately after the event. And, you know, I see that, John, to your point, over and over again and and. So many officers would give anything, anything, if they could go back in time to after the event to actually properly and professionally articulate the incident. Uh, they, they would go back and do that. Um, it's laziness. It's unprofessional to, you know, the, the event's over. We dust everybody off. Bad guy goes to jail and, and we go out on the next call. 
You got to it. Part of professional policing is the whole call from start to finish and actually thinking about civil litigation, criminal litigation down the road and making sure that you have tied this incident off with documentation and everything. I'd agree with everything you, you, know, you all just said. And, and, you know, maybe I guess turning it to the, the folks that are watching this, if there's officers law enforcement officers watching this, you know, some takeaways might be from the conversation we're having is that uh, a myth, the largest myth I can think about in the context of this conversation is that uh, you going to the academy and, you know, in most cases, and then relying on the training provided by your department and your department's instructors, the myth is that that's all you need. The myth is that that's going to keep you safe. That's going to help you to allow you to defend yourself in all situations and win the fight. Uh, speaking from experience in California, you know, I've been a cop for 20 years here in California. Um, the training that we get just provided by the department, if I were to simply say, I'm just going to rely on my employer to train me, I'll sit back. I'm not going to read anything. I'm not going to put myself through training. I'm not going to try to better my situation. I just want it all to be delivered to me by my employer. Uh, I would be woefully unprepared. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, due to laws, uh, financial constraints, the difficulty in, in providing training, we get a lot of check the box training. Right. And if anyone believes that they can walk out of a police academy, the standard ones, not the great ones that, that I'm hearing about today, but the standard ones and then go work for a police department that's going to provide you, you know, eight hours of training every two years, something like that with a long lunch. You got out early. Uh, maybe in there you got two or three reps as you wait in line with everyone else in no way, you know, would that honestly, you know, prepare you for what's out in the street. And uh, for the folks out there, especially the guys that are in the Academy, once you get uh, to become a cop and you're, uh, you know, you're working instead of buying 25 guns, 32 flashlights, a brand new truck, a new boat, uh, all that stuff, um, Log on Tony's website, you know, go, go sign yourself up for a real class, you know, go do some, uh, buy the books that we've been talking to you about, spend the money on stuff that's, that's going to, uh, mean something. And, uh, they were just, we were discussing fear, uh, earlier. We were discussing uh, all the things that are going to happen. It's much more complicated out in the street than it is in a mat room. It's the Academy. We're going to teach you just little techniques, how to do this, how to do how to do that. When you're out in the street, it's really, really hard. And there's about a million things going through your head. And I can tell you every year it gets more and more difficult. As you watch the news and you're thinking, oh, gosh, am I going to get sued? Is this the right way? What te-? You know, I remember being in a fight with a guy, another officer, and we're fighting a guy. And this guy's kind of winning. The officer goes to tase him and then puts the taser back because we had just learned earlier uh, don't taste people in the chest because it might cause this. That officer then takes a, a foot to the uh, face, gets his tooth knocked out. And I'll never forget that happening because that shows you what training does. That shows you what priming does. He hesitated. He got hurt. And a lot of the defensive tactics training, unfortunately, the conventional ones in law enforcement isn't real. You know, learning these complicated 15-step techniques to put on handcuffs uh, I always hearken back to my academy instructor is a guy that um, I'm friends with now. I'm blessed to call him a, a friend and a co-instructor, Steve Pappy Pappenfus, ex-San Jose PD guy, taught me in the academy, 
just put the cuffs on. If the guy's resisting, you know, you should put it on, just put it on. Right. And I never thought, I never uh, forgot that. It's not, yeah, we can learn, you know, micro techniques, but if you think in a fight, I'm going to be thinking, okay, is it this finger I use with the cuff? Is it that? It's come on. That's not real. Great points, man. I'm going to have to, we're going to have to cut uh, Scott in on this uh, for helping with the promo there, Tony. Um, if Tony's going to pay me for that one. If anybody is listening <laughs> to this, um, after we're all done here and on the website and stuff, um, I know Tony's going to give everybody some discounts um, on the no fear seminar that he has. And then if you're a law enforcement officer and you want to attend some of the training camps um, or anything like that, we're going to, we're going to have some deals for you too. So make sure to stay tuned to that. So thanks Tony for that. Appreciate it. Yeah. My pleasure. Um, there's a lot to, to go off of what you guys said, but there's a lot of, we can move into a lot of different directions from this. So um, is there any one that's, that's kind of standing out for you guys right now that you really want to want to jump on top of? From your list. On the list, off the list. There's, um, a, there's a, there's an interesting question. Uh, one of the comments here um, from. Uh, which Mr. one? I'll pop it up. Mr. M. It's a uh, Mr. or Mrs. M. I'm just assuming, but it's, it's, it's a tricky one. You know, uh, my opinion is going to be, well, I think, I think everyone, Scott, you're still active duty, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. So Chris and John, you're retired and, and in private sector now. Yeah. So we can, we can talk shit. You got to be careful. <laughs> yes. But, yes. But, um, <laughs> read this question out, so if somebody's listening to this on the podcast afterwards, uh, the question was, how do we train or retrain officers that are more of a liability on use of force calls than an asset? Many are stubborn, not physically fit, and unwilling to make themselves better. Rarely do we see them removed. So who wants to take that one? That's an easy one. Uh, instead of asking that question and trying to put it on us, you know, I'm not, I'm not being disrespectful here, but the answer is go report them to your supervisor. Yeah. And how many Leadership. cops are going to do that, right? The answer is if that guy or that person you're speaking of, think about that person right now, is using illegal amounts of force, is violating some policy, you know their problem, walk into your supervisor's office and, and raise your hand. And unfortunately that, that is a, a very difficult thing to do. Um, could that have, you know, make problems for you? Could that have, you know, career damaging this and that maybe. Yeah. I would acknowledge that. Do, do um, we, do we have anything? I mean, that, that, you know, that's okay. Like that's the next thing. I think what he's, what, how I read it is how do we train or retrain? In other words, yeah. I'm in training. There's uh, I don't know if you guys know uh, uh, Sean Tebow out of Henderson PD. Um, if any of you guys have had a chance to work with him, but he uh, um, he does really amazing uh, scenario training uh, in service and recruit, where where he challenges the emotional psychological decision making loop, and he's had officers and they're and they're using you know our, our high gear and and like it's full on, and he's had like officers lose their shit, uh, like emotionally, where he's able to, through his understanding of uh, those three R's that I mentioned earlier, realistic, rigorous, and uh, rigorous and relevant, uh, expose emotional, psychological weakness. Like everyone can be good at the baton or the, sh- or the shooting or the, the takedowns or the ground and pound or whatever. You know, it's it's, can you control somebody in an out of control scenario. And so when I look at this, when I first read the question is, well, how do we train and retrain? Step one is, is, is to 
expose that, maybe documented, videotape the training and go, look, like this is excessive force. Therefore, this is negligent. This is, you didn't need to do that. And you did that to a training partner. And like, you can't do that in the street. And that would dovetail uh, into into uh, what you had said, Scott. Um, and then it's like, okay, like this is an actual uh, liability. And I'm just, I'm just thinking from a guy who just does all the training all the time is where I've seen people where, where, you know, you're like, you're in class and you're suddenly like a referee in a UFC fight going, whoa, hold on a second. The role player is down. You just kicked him in the head. Stop, you know? So I want to throw that in there is like, do we have any, any training tips aside from, okay, it's gotten to this, it's, it's, this is now uh, physically dangerous and, and legally dangerous. We've got to report them, which I, which I do agree with. But was there anything in between that? I'll, uh, I'll just add something we learned and we started using in our uh, instructor enhancement program that we do. Um, so what happened? John just froze. Oh, no. John's gone. <laughs> <laughs> while, we're, while we're waiting for John, I can add on to that, Adam. Yeah, if, go ahead. If that's okay. And I appreciate uh, Tony's comment, especially the one about how do you control somebody in an out-of-control scenario and my perspective on that is first of all the first person that has to be controlled is the officer themselves and and to diagnose so when you've got an officer who doesn't perform well in a use of force event in a rapidly unfolding high stress type of event well you've got to diagnose first of all what is the causes of that is it a lack of training uh, perhaps the officer needs more or different type of training that they're deficient in uh, perhaps the training that they have been given is actually the cause of their inability to maintain emotional regulation. And what I mean by that is, you know, we've got an, in trainers out there who believe that uh, stress inoculation training means to amp up the complexity and stress of a scenario to stress the shit out of an officer till they shut down cognitively and go into code black. And then they go, yeah, that, that was awesome scenario based training. no, that, that was horrible. You just taught an officer how to shut down and quit. And so there's a science and an art to properly design scenario-based high-fidelity training, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but I've seen officers shut down operationally tied directly back to s- stress injuries caused from extremely deficient and negligent training by instructors who don't know what they're doing. Um, I've seen officers... Uh, not perform well in use of force events because what turns out later to they have post-traumatic stress disorder from other types of events or psychological issues. So um, I think you can't just say, well, you know, you've got to diagnose and add, this goes back to the caring piece as an instructor, whether you've got recruits in the academy or in-service officers, is you've got to care about human beings and find out why is this officer struggling to perform the way that we expect them to perform and actually do some diagnosis and see if you can get into that. And yes, at the end of the day, you know, some officers just don't care. And my dad always told me, you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. And so if a cop doesn't care about their safety, they don't care about the safety of their partners, they're negligent on duty, they don't follow policy, then I agree 100% with uh, Mr. Savage at that point is then there's disciplinary uh, measures that need to be taken. But you've got a lot of work to do before you get to that point. I, I think you brought a really, really good point, Chris, that like, like 
this shouldn't be a surprise. Everyone knows like who that hothead is. And uh, I just got a, uh, a text message earlier today uh, about a buddy and I'm not going to obviously mention the agency and, and all of that, but it just, you know, uh, guys who just like, like choking out people cause they can, you know, just like they're, you know, they're into, uh, uh, like it's, it's that, it's the ego and, and that should be discovered before somebody is put on the street. It comes back, it comes back to the training filter. All right, that concludes part one of our three-part series from our Instructors Roundtable. Make sure to join us for parts two and three by clicking next on your podcast player, or you can always visit us at thebreakdown.ca forward slash IRT. You can find the full video interview there, as well as all the links and information on the instructors, their companies. And again, thank you to Blower Tactical Systems for sponsoring this podcast. Make sure to check them out at blowerspear.com. Use the code TACTICAL. Save yourself on some training. That's an exclusive deal only for this instructor's roundtable, so make sure to take advantage of that. As always, if you like what you're hearing, you're finding this information actionable and useful, consider subscribing to the podcast. If you have a few minutes, rate and review the podcast. Really appreciate it. It helps us out a ton. I look forward to bringing you the next episode here on the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. Until then, stay safe.